is my observation that everybody wants to either be a king or be near a king. And now I've already said that, you're like a little bit like, huh? What do you mean? I'm not that fussed about the royal wedding, I'm really not that bothered. I'm not talking about the monarchy in the UK. I'm talking about what a king was always supposed to be. So you think of Prince Charles, or even the king from the king's speech, that's not really a king. Historically, in every nation of the world, at one point or another, there have been proper kings. A king is the brave hero who leads the armies into battle, who defeats the enemy, who brings glory to the people, who establishes safety, peace and rest and protects them from all threats. Everybody either wants to be a king or be near a king. With a king you have dignity, safety and glory. Without a king you're vulnerable, pathetic and incapable. Now Hollywood knows this and Hollywood's been playing off this for ages. They've been giving us kings and we pay however much it is and go and watch. So the kings of the 1950s in Hollywood were cowboys and you knew they were the kings because they were the ones in the white hats and what did they do? They drove away the nasty enemies in the black hats. They were the heroes who brought safety out in the wild west. The good cowboys. John Wayne who went and fixed their wagon or whatever the phrase was. That was the 50s. In the 60s it was a little bit more subtle. They were giving us a slightly different kind of king. They were giving us a James Bond type of king. And every fellow wanted to be him, unflappable, under pressure. Uh, and kept not just the people nearby, but the whole world safe from international espionage and terrorism. Who didn't want to be James Bond and who didn't want to be a Bond girl? You either want to be the king or you want to be near the king. Because where the king is, it's safe. In the 70s, we went for extraterrestrial kings. Who am I thinking of? He had a red cape. And he had a blue suit. He was Superman. And he was, well, extraterrestrial, and he fought for truth, justice, and the American way. But there was another extraterrestrial king on show, and he was trained by Yoda, had a, a lightsaber, and could destroy the dark side. Of course, that was Luke Skywalker and the Jedi. Yeah? And everybody, all the kids, used to run around. And I was a little kid, and I used to play Star Wars. I never wanted to be Darth Vader. I wanted to be Luke Skywalker, and I would get into a fist fight with my mates at school if they suggested that I couldn't be the king. Because everybody either wanted to be the king or be around the king. In the 80s, it was a bit more biblical. Uh, we had warlords. So we had Chuck Norris, we had Sylvester Stallone, and we had Arnold Schwarzenegger. They were the kings, weren't they? They were the biblical, more biblical in the sense that they were flawed soldiers, invincible in battle. They didn't mind not have used the bow and arrow, a sword and a shield, but they had an M M50 machine gun on these big things with the belts of bullets going in. They were invincible in battle, they were undefeatable, they would wear their scars all over their body, but they kept people safe and got the bad guys. They were a biblical king. In the 90s, I just couldn't think of anything, sorry. In the, in the noughties, now it's a bit more subtle, I was trying to think, who were the kings? Who were the... Well, I thought, they were Jason Bourne, weren't they? Highly trained, technically savvy, taekwondo martial artists who evaded the bad guys who brought down terrorist rings and always had a trick at their sleeve to keep the girls safe. That was the, I suppose, the kings of the Norses. I suppose you could sort of leave a Russell Crowe in there with Gladiator. Never have I been so scared when I went to see a film and watching the film Gladiator in the, in, in the cinema. And you thought he was, um, what is, what, uh, what's his name, Maximus. What was it, what's his full name? Maximus, 
I can't remember. That's him, yeah. See? Kev wanted to be him. Kev wanted to be the king. Kev would stand in front of the mirror as a youngster, brandishing his sword and going for the glory of Rome, what you do today, echoes in eternity and all that rubbish. We all either want to be a king or be married to a king. And as we love watching it, it's just written into the way we think. We want to be the hero or else we want to marry the hero. We want a king because where the king is, he makes it all good and we are safe. So we think of the king as the hero, the champion, the one that we need. And today's news from the Bible is that Hollywood for once have got it right. We were made to trust in a king. And all the kings and all the... All the heroes that are portrayed, all of those, plus the millions of others, who all the kids look up to and want to be and play in the playground, all the fellas think, yeah, really, if I had his training, I'd be able to do that as well. All of them are a faint echo. A faint echo of the king we were supposed to sit under, be near, and look to. And that's where we're up to in our Bible overview. We are up to a point where God's people... They need a king. And just like us, we need a king. One who secures us, dignifies us, gives us peace from our real enemies, and is a deserving king. So, where have we been up to to this point? And we'll see why we need it, okay? Up to this point, you can see the two points under here. So far, two things have become incredibly apparent as we've moved through this Bible overview. First thing is this, the constant unfaithfulness of God's people. Remember he called the nation to himself and he made them the promises that Mark was talking about? He says, through this family that became a nation, through Abraham, there would be a great nation who would bring blessing to all the world. Out of them would come blessing that would pour out. And it would be, as they sat under the gracious rule and blessing of the true God, sharing it out to other people, and God has rescued them, it wasn't because they were any good. He has brought them to himself. And at every turn, they've had a failure to trust and depend on him. I suppose you could put it this way. They were sort of saying, I'd like to play king and I know what's best in my life. And God, I'll allow you around as long as it's convenient. But when push comes to shove, I'll trust my own instincts and I'll fight my own battles. And at this point, they're in a total mess. I suppose you could call it stubbornness. Stubbornness meant that they didn't enjoy God's blessing as it was intended. He was the king. It was a, what's called a, not, you know, we talk about democracy. It was a theocracy. A rule under God. Okay, not under people. Theocracy. And at this point where we've got up to in the book of Judges, they're just wondering why life is so rubbish. But it's obvious. You walk out from under the blessing of the true and real king, stuff breaks. It falls apart. So if one thing was sure, it was the total unfaithfulness of God's people, and that hasn't moved on. The other thing that was for sure was the persistent faithfulness of God to his promises. He got the job done. I mean, that like Swift, didn't we? And we're looking at the way he moved them into the promised land, and he could defeat any enemy, and at every turn they were like, no, I can't really do that, and then bang, he does it. And they get carried into the land of blessing on his coattails. He would raise up judges for them. Do you remember that? When their enemies were defeating them because of their unfaithfulness to God, he would raise up a judge out of his grace and his mercy. He hadn't given up on his promises. God is faithful. And he says, I will save even if you don't even want to be saved. I'm going to deliver you. 
And so that's what we're up to. We can see on the diagram, remember, we started well in the Garden of Eden. Things took a big tumble down with Noah, the flood, the Tower of Abel. He made the promises to Abraham through Abraham's family. They went through the Exodus, got the Ten Commandments, which was like a marriage document. You remember that? Where God married himself to this nation. Into the land flowing with milk and honey. You can see it over the trees. But if I was being really accurate, round about where the trees are, I'd put a glitch. Because they're in the lands, but they're not living as God's people. And things are a total state. In fact, where we finished last week was where Amy read for us earlier. She said, in those days, Israel had no king. And everybody did as he saw fit. God was their king, but they weren't treating him as such. So it was absolutely horrendous. Um, The society had totally broken down. It was a little bit like the Wild West. The Book of Judges could be turned into a Hollywood film because there's gang rape, there's the oppression of the poor, there's theft, there's power plays, there's people treating each other as scum. At one point, the Israelites hack people into 12 pieces, hack a person into 12 pieces and send the bits of his body off to each of the corners of the land. That's their way of sending an email to say, let's get together. Things have gone totally, totally wrong because they've compromised on their faithfulness to God. And what they've done is they've brought it on themselves. So let's look at this call for a king. So if you flick flick over your page, the top of the next page it says the call for a king. Now the problem... Have you got the right one? So the problem in the book of Judges was that God would raise up a judge. Do you remember them from last week? Can anybody name any of the judges? I'll give you a clue. Ehud. Deborah. Come on. Gideon's one of them. Samson's another. You can keep quiet. Give me another. Deborah. Good. Any others? Got to read your book of judges. Yeah. We'll leave that there. Raised up the judges and it'd be good while that judge was in charge but as soon as that judge died the people went back to their old ways. They needed a reign that went on. And so their worship, by the time we get to the book of 1 Samuel, their worship has all gone corrupt. The, the, the judges, and when we think judges, don't think wig, think rescuer. The judges they were temporary and they were quite fallen and, and broken themselves. Um, and we've got this, we, we end up with the last judge who's called Samuel. Now we haven't got time to talk about how Samuel was called, but Samuel was quite unique. He was a little bit like Moses. Do you remember that Moses was like a judge rescuer for the people, but he was also a prophet. Samuel was just the same. He was the last of the judge prophets. And they come to him, and we've got it written down there, in 1 Samuel chapter 8. So turn up 1 Samuel chapter 8 if you would please. That's page 196. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. In other words, you're about to peg it and we know what's happened when all the other judges have pegged it. We need something better. We need a better system. They should have gone back to actually live out the system they were given, but they didn't. 
You're old and your son's not walking your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us. And if they'd said that, it would have been fine. Because in Deuteronomy, when God gave them the law, he said it was okay to have a king. But the motives and the reason for choosing a king are all important. What is it they actually say? Now appoint a king to lead us. Why? Such as all the other nations have. Why is that so important? It's because they were utterly insecure and they were utterly dissatisfied with their lot and they thought the answer was to get your security, your satisfaction, like all the other nations were were trying to get it. Which is fine if you're any other nation, but not if you're God's people, because who are God's people supposed to go to for their security and for their satisfaction? We've been learning this every week. Who should they go to? A political system? God. Remember in Exodus chapter 19 he called them to himself and said, you out of all the nations are to be my special people. We've got a special relationship. You don't need to rely on those other political systems like everybody else does. You don't want to be like them. You're supposed to be different because you're supposed to show forth my glory to the rest of the world. And so the Lord was dead right because you can see what comes up there. I love Samuel. I mean, if we had more time, Samuel's one of these prophets, prophet judges, and just if you went through the books, you'd see all the time he prays. He feels totally whacked out by this. He's just frustrated. Verse 6, But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. Whenever he's got a problem, he prays to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me. After all that he's done for them again and again and again, digging them out of mess after one after the other, their problem is them. But actually, they're rejecting the Lord. It's amazing how we do that, isn't it? We, we sort of we get ourselves into an almighty mess, and then we say, oh, it's because God's not good enough. And we're the one who acted out of total lack of faith in the first place. As they have done from the first day, I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me. That's a cold word in the Bible. It means turning away from somebody who's there for you. Forsaking me and serving other gods. They were just going to be like all the other nations. So they're doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king will, who will reign over them will do. You see, they don't mind God being there. They just don't want to trust him. They'll have God when it's convenient and on a Sunday morning when they're happy, but the rest of the week they want to trust something else that gives them a deeper feeling of security. And I wonder whether we're so different. I wonder how many of us find our comfort in knowing that we're safe and we'll be able to stand against threats because of how much money we've got stashed away in the bank account. I wonder how many of us find our security and our confidence by the fact we've got a wife or a husband or the right friends around us. Both of those things are great, but they can't be, they're, not, they're very bad kings. They were never meant to be kings. They were never meant to be things who were your source of security, your comfort and your ability to take, walk out into life strong. They were never supposed to be your springboard for life. They were never supposed to be the thing that would defeat your enemies and make you safe. God. Only God can do that. What an insult to God. He's been faithful to them and they're basically looking him in the face and saying, you don't cut it. 
that the Lord gives him a king. So carry on, partway down the next column in 1 Samuel 9 verse 16. You'll see this here. In fact, we'll start at verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, about this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him leader over my people Israel. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked upon my people, for their cry has reached me. Now the important thing to realise this is that Saul is chosen, is, is, is the people's choice. They want a king like all the other nations. So God gives them it. Please, I've told you this before, be very, very careful about what you ask God for. If he gives us what we want, we should be very scared. Because inevitably what we want is usually stupid. They wanted a king like all the other nations. Now what was a king like all the other nations? Tall, handsome, could carry the biggest sword, could lead them out into battle, was a, an icon to be looked to. You looked at your king and you said, yes, he typifies all our ambition and all our life goals and everything we want to be. And Saul was that. It says in the Bible, he was ahead above all the others. He was ruddy and handsome. He was sort of up there. He was sort of like Brad Pitt, but even taller and more muscular if possible. He would make, as he walked down the street, the women would go weak at the knees. He's the kind of king we want. He was poster material. He was the Russell Crowe out of Gladiator of the day. Everything you wanted to be pet, I'd have you any day meeting. And the prophet here, Samuel, gives boundaries. He says, look, you know, you've got to listen to the prophet. You'll be anointed. You'll be appointed. You'll be spirit in Jew. The Lord will give you a particular gift to get this job done. And of course that happens and Saul does go out and win a battle. Um, but it has to come with a warning. And if you turn over to 1 Samuel 12, verse 24 and 25, you'll see the warning here. Because things look as if they're going right with Saul. He looks like he was the right choice. In fact, we'll read from verse 22 of chapter 12. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. So God's reaffirming his promises to them, but he's with them. As for me, far be it from me that I should... This is Samuel talking. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. He's at it again, praying. And I will teach you the way uh, that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. You notice this? This, is, this, this sort of language has come up every week, hasn't it? About faithfulness and the covenant of God. Consider what great things he has done for you. Remember, remember what he's done. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will be swept away. So there's a warning there. You turn back to unfaithfulness, and things are going to fall apart. And in 1 Samuel 15, they do. Saul fails. He disobeys God's word directly. He tries to take things into his own hand. He tries to be a, a priest as well as a king. And disobeying God's word, he said, hold on, he just tripped up. No, he didn't. Our relationship is one of faith, isn't it? We've been learning this through. We relate to God through his promises. He promises to secure us and satisfy our needs. And he says, trust me in that. And he shows people what it looks like to trust him. So in that situation where Saul was, he was called to do something from the Lord, which in fact would be an expression of his faith that the Lord is really the one who's delivering them. But because he was scared of everybody else around him, he did it his way which is disobedience because he's not trusting God's promise. The only way any of us relate to God is through believing his word of promise to us. 
And when you stop doing it, it will show in your choices and your actions. And sometimes we're the last to know, aren't we? You see, being a Christian isn't just about sitting in a church and filling it on a Sunday morning. It's about having a relationship of faith with the Lord God of all the universe. And saying that no matter what my eyes tell me as I look around, I know your promises and you're what I need and I will live out my life in dependence upon you. And Saul fails. Now this was the king's, this was the people's king. I wonder whether you've learned anything by listening. We're to get a king who's going to do the business, we're going to need to maintain a healthy scepticism over our instinct to pick things to rely on. Do you feel the weight of that? Of course we feel so confident and strong, don't we? I'm really good at making choices. I know what to rely on and build my hope on. Really? We're so often the last to know, aren't we? We've got a long track record of making really bad choices and choosing really bad kings. And we find it so difficult, don't we, to put our trust and say, Lord, you choose us. You give us what we need. So here we find that God makes a choice. He gives them the king after Saul has failed. This one's God's choice. Look at 16 verse 1. Chapter 16 verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And Jesse, Samuel gets there. Jesse's all excited. Wow, one of my sons is going to be king. It must be this one. So he goes to the tall, dark and handsome one, the oldest. No, not him, says the Lord. Although Samuel's going, yeah, it must be him. Next one comes along. And Samuel goes, oh, he's poor. Look at the muscles on that fella. He must be the... No, keep going, keep going, keep down to the seventh son, who's a scrawny little shepherd boy called David. And the Lord says, I know what I'm looking for, you're going to trust my choice. I'm going to choose somebody after my own heart, which basically means after my choosing. I'm going to choose somebody who's in line with what I think is important and precious. You've chosen your king, you've got what you want, rest it. Trust me. And he goes to little ruddy David, and he anoints him with oil. And from that moment onwards, it's a symbol of what God was doing. God gave, endued him with the Spirit of God to be able to do what he had been called to do. And so we find here a definition. Can you see it in the notes? We're going to speed up so don't feel panicked that we haven't got that far through the notes. Here's a definition of what God's king is. Can you see it there written in there? A spirit-anointed warrior who defeats the enemies of God's people, bringing them rest. That's God's people, rest. That's the definition of a king in the Bible. And so think of the story of David and Goliath. Everybody's heard the story of David and Goliath, and so often they've heard it wrong. So you've heard it, look, here's the story of David and Goliath, little squirt, with God's help, defeats the giants. You're a little squirt, you've got giants coming against you in your life, Uh, what you need to do is pick up some stones of faith and read in your Bible, and chuck them at the giants, and you can be just like David and win in the battle. That's not what the story of David and Goliath is there for at all. That's ripping the Bible about. David is the Lord's anointed king, warrior, rescuer. And here's the Israelites standing in one place, their knees knocking, because every day this smelly, big, unshaven Philistine called Goliath comes out and 
challenges God and his people. And every day, God's people stand here quivering because they know that he can batter them. That they are helpless under this mighty warrior. They've got no chance. All they can do is look at each other and kick their heels and they're going to be oppressed for the rest of their life because nobody can beat their champion. Then the Lord raises up this little squirt who's got no muscles and the only weapon he can carry is a little sling. And he comes up and says to Saul, who's still the king at that time, and says, I'll go out and fight that fellow. Come on, go out and fight him in the strength of the Lord. So Saul tries to put armour on him. He can barely move. So he takes the armour out. He walks down, picks up some little stones from the brook, and he marches out to this huge enemy. Meanwhile, who are the people of God, i.e. you and me, we're the ones standing with our knees knocking. You little... I'm not going to echo the abuse in the Bible. And little David says, you come against me with sword and spear, but I come against you in the name of the true and living God. Who are you to challenge him? And he lets Philip fly with his stone, smack, and batters Goliath, goes over there, hacks off his head. He is the anointed victor who wins the victory for his incapable, pathetic, unable, fearful, unfaithful, untrusting, no good people of God, a cheer goes up and they join in his victory and get the glory with him. He's the anointed king who wins the battle. He does it for them. We're not David. We're them. Who's David for us? Who's David for us? Come on, you've been in church long enough. Jesus. And Jesus wins the great battle for us. Look, there's no heroes in the Old Testament or in the Bible. There's just one hero. That's God. And the crush without him. You remember that each week we've gone through and we've looked at God's kingdom style, the way he rolls, what he does. And I've moved it forward a little bit. I'm doing it at the end. Just put it here. So, you know, that we've seen each week that God is sovereign, that he's wise, that he's glorious, and that he's gracious. So in this story, we see it, don't we? We see it here that... Um, Hold on, there's a bit of paper gone. Yeah, we see it here that in that story of David and Goliath, the Lord is sovereign. The people are struggling, they've got nothing to do, but the Lord sends along a king. No obstacle is too big for him, nothing can stand in his way, and it is God's choice of a king that gets the job done. We see that he's glorious in that he wins a phenomenal victory against all the odds, but he shares the glory with his useless and rubbish people. That's us, by the way. We get to bask in the glow of the completeness of his rescue and mighty salvation. Because he's glorious. He's wise. And we, read, and we haven't got time to dig in and read through it a little bit more. But we find in that story that David becomes the person who brings God's family of people together. Before they were a disparate group yelling, moaning, complaining. But wisdom is bringing things together. God acts in wisdom to bring them. And make them a force who have got dignity and respect and serve the other nations rather than getting battered by the other nations. And he's gracious. The only thing that the people contributed to this was their fear and unfaithfulness. He did it. All they could do was stand and watch as he won it for them. And if you're a Christian, you know that you don't get in with God by trying to win the battle yourself, by being anything special. That's all sheer grace. All you can do is stand and watch as Jesus rescues us from sin and death and hell. 
That's our king. That's our king. Very quickly, because I'm going to have to zip over all of this so we can finish, but if you look here, under the victory of the king, and I, I haven't got the time to unpack it all, but in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we haven't got time to go there now, but in 2 Samuel chapter 5, he, the king David conquers Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem literally means city of peace. He establishes a place that nobody can touch. It's untouchable. Sometimes in the New Testament, it's referred to as Zion. And all of his armies and all of his people, because of his great victories, are brought in there. They're safe and they're secure. They've got rest and peace. You know, that's one of the things we've been talking about, isn't it? The development of rest and peace. And in the New Testament, they're told in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, that you, if you're a believer, if you're one of Jesus' people, you are already established spiritually in Zion. Jesus Christ has established us so that whatever comes against us in this world, spiritually we're untouchable. The devil can't have us. We will be safe forever in God's kingdom. Untouchable because the king has won for us a city of peace. 2 Samuel chapter 5 here, he conquers all their enemies. He conquers all their enemies. Uh, That's the Philistines primarily. And they're people who would come against God, who would disregard God, And to be honest with you, he conquers the the enemies that are within them as well. Because their greatest issue was their unfaithfulness and unwillingness to trust. But when they saw their king leading the way, they said, look, our God is powerful, and they got him behind, and they trusted God, as shown by them following the king. And the news of the New Testament is that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, he has gone and beaten down sin and death and hell. In Colossians chapter 2, He has taken his enemies and he has triumphed over them at the cross. So that although enemies may come against us, people may come against us, may fight hard, there will be disappointment, struggle, frustration, spiritually you're untouchable. He has beaten sin and death and hell. And when the other ones that come against us, which is the flesh, our own failure and our own sin would seek to pull us away from God, he says, I've defeated that as well because I've paid for it. You are totally secure and safe in me. He conquers all enemies. Then there's two Samuels, chapter 6 here. The Ark of the Covenant, do you remember that? I'd like to test you, I asked you last week, what was the, word, the little word Ark? What did that mean? Like Noah's Ark, or the Ark of the Covenant? You said it last time as well. Chest, yeah? Remember it was the little chest with the promises, the covenant deal, like the wedding ring of God and his people, and it had gone into the hands of the enemies. David liberated it, lifted it up, put it into Jerusalem. It was the sign of God's presence with them. This conquering king had opened up God's presence to the people. Some of you will remember the account in Mark's Gospel. In Mark chapter 15, verse 38. As Jesus dies on the cross, he cries out, It is finished. And suddenly the camera angle changes. All the action has been at the cross. And for one little verse, the camera angle shifts over to the inside the temple and what gets said. Do you can remember it? What happens? Do you remember? The curtain in the temple that keeps people from the presence of God is torn, not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom. Jesus opens up access for you and me to God. So that we can have his spirit at work within us. So we can have the down payment of all his future promises. We are not just simply people who agree with a few theological points in the Bible. We're people who meet with God every day. 
great presence with us. And who got it for us? The king. 2 Samuel chapter 7, massive promises in there. And the promise comes to David when he's trying to build a house for God. And the Lord says, no, no, I'm going to build a house. Plays on words. Not a house. David wants to build him a palace, a house. God says, uh-uh, I'm going to build you a house. And by that word, it's a play on the word, which means dynasty. A future for your family. And the Lord says, I'm going to transfer all my promises to you. And if people want to get your promises, sorry, get my promises, it will come through you. I'm going to raise up out of your offspring a son who will reign forever on an endless throne. And he will rule over all things. And David's scratching his head because he looks at his no good bunch of sons and he sees, well, maybe. And in the end, Solomon is one of the sons who, out of whom they, he does build the temple in Jerusalem. But Solomon fails miserably. And it becomes in, incredibly apparent that this son who, of David, which one's, is he the one of the promise? This eternal one who will reign forever? In fact, I've written it down there. Which son will inherit the promise? They're always checking all the way down through the history of the kings of Israel. Could this be the one who's going to actually do the ultimate rescue and ultimately secure God's people? Who will be the son of David on the throne of David forever? Because all of the other ones die. And they're all that bunch. So they're waiting with this enigma of this promise hanging over them. You can see at the bottom of the page there, you can see where we're up to in the promises. I'll have to skip over Solomon just because time is gone. But you remember the promises to Abraham? That God's people will be a great nation, countless descendants. Well now, under David, they're the people under God's king. And it's wonderful. It's the high point of the Old Testament. If you look there under the place, you know, the Lord promised to give them a land and now they've got a land and at the centre of that land is the city of David, the city of the king, at peace and totally secure. Has God kept his promise? You better believe it. There was the promise that God would rule them and bring blessing not just to them but to all the nations and under David and David's son, the son of God. That was what the promise was. So we're still waiting for something there, aren't we? So all the way through here, there's been this question. Is the earthly king able to live up to expectation? Can he cut the mustard? Solomon built the temple, ushered in a golden age, bought larger borders, people travelled from nations and said, wow, enemies came against them, but they were secure because they were under the king. And still they were left asking the question, which son will inherit the promise? Which son will be the ultimate king who will rule forever? Flick over very quickly as we finish. Flick over to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 verse 9. It's on page 706. At that time Jesus came from Nazareth, in Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. 
And with the coming of Jesus came the news that the eternal King, the Son of God, was here to rescue and secure his people. There was an old Pentecostal preacher who knew this. And we're going to see just a two or three minute clip of this. A very famous sermon. A clip of the sermon, the sermon's called, Is This Your King? So I wonder, Ian, could you possibly move to those there and close those curtains? I'll close those. We'll get the lights off. Kev, I'll sort it out, matey. I'll deal with it. But your question to ask as you're watching this is, is this your king? Is this your king?